lady. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins. And I know that you are missing Tony, and the good news is he will be back on Monday. So you just have the weekend to wait. He has uh, come back from his vacation. He will be with you again in the chair on Monday. Look forward to having him back. I know that all of you do. All of us do. I want to remind you that the program can be found TonyPerkins.com. You can find this in every program there if you want to review any of the content and content and share it with your friends. Today on the program, a lot more about Afghanistan and how it's affecting Congress as well as the American people. Pollster Scott Rasmussen will join us to share the results from his latest poll. Have the events in Afghanistan affected America's confidence in President Biden? We'll discuss that a little later. We'll also talk with a former member of the Trump administration's State Department who has helped coordinate efforts between the State Department and the Defense Department. Has the planning been as bad as it seems in Afghanistan? We'll have that conversation with her. At the end of the program, Representative Jody Heiss will join us to discuss what role Congress should be playing in providing accountability. Can they hold anybody accountability? accountable? Or will they? That's the conversation. But first, the headlines, uh, the news from Afghanistan seems to be going from bad to worse. First, the Taliban reseized control of the country within a week, completely surprising the Biden administration. And with it, the rights of women, children and religious minorities have evaporated in that country. Then yesterday, a bombing near the Hamid Karzai International Airport, the last American stronghold in the country, rocked the nation. At least 13 American soldiers and more than 90 Afghans were tragically killed. It's also the epicenter of our withdrawal from the country. And joining me now to discuss this is FRC's Executive Vice President, founding member of the Army's Elite Delta Force, and former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence is Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. General, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Joseph. I'm glad to be with you. Well, first, I want to hear your reaction to the president's press conference yesterday after the after the bombing. What's your response to the way he is responding? You know, what I saw there yesterday was a, a totally out of touch and incompetent man uh, that didn't know which way to go. And I thought that there was a lot of theater there in the in the very end when he said, we'll hunt you down. Yeah, well, uh I, I don't find that credible. I don't find it sincere. And I don't think the American public does either, at least those that are objective about it. And this is a, uh, this is a, this is a, the most powerful man in the world, if you stop and think about it. And it's, it's frightening and disappointing that, uh, that that's who's in charge of our military now as a commander in chief. During that press conference, there was an exchange with Peter Ducey, and uh, President Biden was asked about the um, the fact that nobody had been killed in Afghanistan in combat since January of 2020. And uh, here was Biden's response to that. The reason why, whether my friend will acknowledge it, or has reported it, the reason why there were no attacks on Americans, as you said, from the date until I came into office was because 
the commitment was made by President Trump, I will be out by May 1st. In the meantime, you agree not to attack any Americans. That was the deal. That's why no American was attacked. Now, General, I'm sincerely confused by this response, and I'm not sure uh, what he's trying to say. Is he saying that the Taliban did their part because they had not killed anyone and we had it coming because we stayed after May 1st? How should we interpret that answer? I don't know. I don't think I don't even think he knew what he was trying to say in that response. I think you are right is the way it would be interpreted is that uh, he made a decision not to be out by May 1st. Therefore, uh, the onus is on him. The responsibility is on him and his administration for the Taliban uh, or not the Taliban, but for terrorists, actually. Uh, blowing up the gate there and killing all of these people. And, of course, uh, I, I don't think that he was very clear in what he was saying there, but I I don't think he knew how to answer the question. And uh, whoever prepared him for that press conference did not do a very good job. Well, granted, that seems to be a difficult job uh, for whoever that person is at this point. The questions are hard because the facts are hard. And so it's hard to get an easy question these days. But uh, the entire administration is really struggling in the same way. Yesterday, uh, during a Pentagon press brief, uh, General Kenneth F. McKenzie, Jr., the commander of the United States Central Command, was asked by a reporter how the suicide bomber made it through several checkpoints to do what we are all now aware of. Here's a clip of that exchange. At this moment in time, how do you believe the suicide bombers made it through several checkpoints, whether it was Taliban or Afghan forces, to the Marines? Do you believe it was, it was a failure or they were able to somehow evade them and make it to the Marines? Well, clearly, if, if they were able to get up uh, to the Marines at the, at the screening, at the, at the entry point of the base, there's a failure somewhere. It was a failure by, well, uh, you know, the Taliban operate with varying degrees of competence. Some of those guys are very scrupulously good. Some of them are not. I just don't know the answer to that question. Um, and But we will, you, you can be assured, we're going to continue to take a look at it and try to make all our uh, all our practices better as we go forward. General Boykin, he talks about the fact that these members of the Taliban that we are depending on for security, some of them are scrupulously good and some of them are not. Uh, you have served. I have not. But I I'm under the assumption that no one joins the U.S. military under the assumption that at any point their security will be in the hands of the Taliban. What are we to make of this? Well, you nailed it. You're absolutely right. You know, we've been. Some of us who have been doing commentary in the news have, 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 have said they need to push that perimeter back because this is a perfect scenario for a, a, uh, a, a bomb uh, to be strapped on somebody and they, they walk up and get in the crowd there. And uh, so this suicide bombing was a scenario that uh, was uh, inevitable. And I think the fact that they were not willing to come outside and move that perimeter back, but rely on the Taliban. And remember that the Taliban are terrorists themselves. Remember that many of the Taliban at one time or another were part of al-Qaeda or ISIS. They move around from one terrorist group to the other. And and we are relying on them for the, our security, security of our soldiers, sailors, airmen. Uh, that's just a that's just foolishness. 
and for that uh, general not to recognize that uh, it was a it was a mistake that starts at the top, and for every commander that was on the ground there, they should have been raising cane about moving that perimeter back so that this kind of thing would have been much more difficult to handle. And then to say that we some of the Taliban or, or Sterling people, you, get, you must be kidding me. They're terrorists. Yeah, you describe this scenario as foolishness, and I think I'm afraid that that's a little uh, that's a, that's just unkind. It, it's an understatement to say that it's merely foolishness because of what is at stake. That uh, we are now assessing the scrupulousness of members of the Taliban that are doing. I'm just surprised at the casualness with which they just acknowledge that the Taliban are, uh, we are depending on the Taliban for our security and, and just kind of what that represents. Now, ISIS-K has taken responsibility for this bombing. What do you know about them? How are they different from old school ISIS? Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about them. This is something new that uh, has come up since I, I left the uh, the. Uh, intelligence community since I left the military, and I don't know much about this ISIS-K bunch, uh, but I, I think that we're going to learn a whole lot about them here uh, pretty pretty quickly since uh, they have taken credit for this. Well, I can't imagine, since they bear the name ISIS, that they're uh, dramatically different than the original ISIS. And based on the events of yesterday, we know they have a lot in common with the original ISIS. So if there's some sectarian difference uh, that distinguishes them, uh, that might matter to members of ISIS and ISIS-K. But to those who are being blown up by suicide bombers, I think that difference is immaterial. Um, but more on ISIS-K, it appears uh, that we had a number of them in our in our custody. And uh, his press uh, yesterday, earlier today, actually, uh, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby was asked about members of ISIS K who we had in custody at Bagram. Here was that exchange. And in terms of ISIS K, how many ISIS K prisoners were left at Bagram and are believed to have been released from the prison there? And why weren't they removed before the U.S. pulled out to some place like Gitmo? Well. Um I don't know the exact number. Clearly, it's in the thousands when you when you when you consider uh, both prisons, because uh, both of them were taken over by the Taliban and emptied. But I, I couldn't give you a precise uh, figure. Now, General Boykin, uh, what's your reaction to that? I, I know that I mean it's assumed that you can't take every bad actor out of a whole nation like Afghanistan and uh, put them into custody once you leave in the hopes that they're not going to do something bad. But what's your reaction to the fact that we apparently just let thousands, in their words, just walk out of Bagram? Well, what would you expect that that would result in? I mean, if you were just uh, uh, just looking at this situation as a, a plausible scenario, what would you expect if you let thousands of terrorists out in a country that is controlled by terrorists? Uh, I think you would expect that the terrorist network would grow and that they will ultimately turn on you and they would come after you uh, because you are the one that held them captive. Uh, so what do you expect? That was a, another bad decision by the Obama administration. Another one. Throw that in the mix of the misjudgments and the bad decisions that this administration 
is guilty of and responsible for. And, and you see a scenario that actually in many ways could have gone even worse. Uh, and it, we could have had more people killed. God bless the families of those who have been killed and wounded, and we pray for them. But the truth of the matter is, when you've released thousands of terrorists into a place like Afghanistan that is under the control of terrorists, uh, you have to expect that this kind of thing is going to be first up front in terms of what they want to accomplish before the last Americans are out of that country. General, uh, we've got about a minute left, but I want to change the subject real quick. And I understand you have some weekend plans involving Stand Courageous that may be relevant to what we're dealing with right now. Tell us about what's happening this weekend. Yeah, thank you very much, Joseph. We're at Liberty University. And uh, tomorrow morning at uh, at 8 o'clock, we start our men's conference, Stand Courageous. So if you haven't registered... Come on, show up, and you can register at the door, or you can register online tonight. And we encourage you to do that. Stand courageous. Go to TonyPerkins.com to find the registration information there. General will be there. Uh, Tony Perkins will be there, and some guy named Joseph Backholm will be there as well, but that's not nearly as important. Uh, General, thanks for your time, again, for your service to our country, and thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. God bless you. So we are going to continue this conversation coming up. What do the polls have to say about how the Afghanistan situation is affecting Americans' confidence in President Biden? We'll discuss it with Scott Rasmussen when we come back. Stay with us. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's Word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading Scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's Word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in his image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org. 
slash ProLifeMaps. Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home in for Tony. I want to remind you that he will be with us again next week in the chair as he returns from vacation. But as the story continues to unfold in Afghanistan, how are the American people feeling about all that has transpired this week in the Middle East? Joining me now to discuss Afghanistan and more is Scott Rasmussen, founder of ScottRasmussen.com and Ballotpedia, editor-at-large. Scott, welcome back to Washington Watch. Difficult days, though. Difficult times for our country right now. Well, we're glad to have you, um, and, and we are curious to see how this is settling with the public broadly. Earlier this week, you released new polling on if Americans think our enemies, like Russia and China, perceive us to be weaker now. What did you learn? 49% of voters say yes. Uh, they think our enemies, because of the way the withdrawal was handled, see us as weaker. 21% uh, disagree with that. Now, not surprisingly, there's somewhat of a partisan difference on this. But still, there is a general sense that this has not been handled well and in a variety of ways it is hurting the country. Right now, only 45% of voters nationwide have confidence in the Biden administration to keep us safe as a nation. I think some of that has to do with what we've seen in Afghanistan this week. Some of it has to do with the fact that, uh, well, the issues at the southern border and other things that have been going on. So, again, a very difficult time. But I want to emphasize, you know, the numbers we're talking about are only a week old, but a lot has happened in the past week, and we're expecting to see, uh, you know, some shifts as time goes on, especially with the things that have happened in the last day or so. Right. And, and in fact, the bombing yesterday in, in Afghanistan, this poll was taken before those events happened. And right. uh, one can't help but wonder or suspect that that would, would perhaps change the responses. Now, you also had another poll result basically saying, that uh, 59% of Americans think a major terrorist attack is likely within the next year. Now, I don't know what the baseline of that is. I don't know how Americans felt previously. But as these polling numbers come in, do you have a sense of which number is most important to the Biden administration? Are they paying attention to any of these? And if so, which ones? Well, let me start with telling you where a baseline is. Uh, the 59 percent who say it's at least somewhat likely there will be a major terrorist attack, uh, very close to what the numbers we found 20 years ago, shortly after 9-11. Um, so there is a heightened level of concern among the general public. 
Uh, now you will we'll see where this goes, but right now, while these attacks and while these scenes are very fresh, very high level of concern. Uh, the Biden administration right now, I think they're trying to figure out which numbers to to uh, to watch. I mean, the real concern, obviously, for all Democrats on the political side of this is the pres- confidence in the president himself and in the administration declining rapidly. Uh, foreign policy news in and of itself doesn't generally grab the voters' attention. But if there is a perception that the commander in chief is not competent, not up to the task, that will have a lasting impact. What's interesting, as we have watched President Biden's responses and his commentary to this is he continues to emphasize the fact that the underlying decision to leave is good. And I can't help but think if he's just hoping and praying and believing that ultimately this will blow over and that the attention span of the American public is short. And by next November, when everybody's at the ballot, all they're going to remember is that we left Afghanistan. I don't know that that's what he's thinking, but his behavior suggests that that might be what he's thinking. But Scott, you've done some other polling as well, because Afghanistan is not the only crisis that the country is dealing with. The COVID uh, COVID continues to be a problem. The new Delta variant, as we are rep- repeatedly told, how are how is the public feeling about the way that's being handled right now? Well, there's great concern. Only 25 percent of voters now believe the worst of the pandemic is behind us. And to give you a sense of scale, uh, you know, we're talking about a situation where three months ago, 56 percent of people believed that the pandemic was behind us. Um, it, there was a sense that finally the end is in sight. <clears throat> And now it looks like, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is an on, oncoming train, at least the way a lot of people are seeing it. So that decline in confidence, huge. It's also having an impact beginning to drag down people's perception of their own personal finances. Uh, obviously not in the immediate impact, but in terms of where their finances are heading, there's growing concern that we might have more lockdowns, even though a majority of voters, 57 percent, say the lockdowns have done more harm than good. Well, that's an interesting number. If 57% of the public believe lockdowns have done more harm than good, uh, why do we continue to see momentum moving that direction? Because as you said, uh, a few months ago, there seemed to be this optimism. We have emerged. Now, in many cases, we're going backwards, masks being required in school, um, talking about third and fourth rounds of vaccinations. Um, where does this go? Do, do, does the public listen to the or do the politicians listen to the public and the polling, or do they continue to just do what they think they need to do? Well, this unfortunately has become a very partisan issue, starting with Dr. Fauci. Democrats think he's uh, a very credible source, and they can't understand why uh, not everybody is listening to him. Republicans can't understand why anybody listens to him, and we're seeing these kind of impacts. What you're seeing from a lot of political leaders right now is they're trying to find a way. They look at something happening and they're reacting, um, going back to things that have happened before. We're seeing a difference between red states and blue states, as you might expect. Uh, I think what's happening is neither side has it entirely right. The Democrats want to say you got to lock everything down until we get this all behind us. Uh, we can't worry about other consequences. Republicans are saying primarily we just need to open up and move on. Uh, the public has a concern. There, there's obviously a health issue here, but the concern isn't the panic level that it was a year or so ago. 
Um, and people want to be trusted to make their own decisions about, you know, do I go here without the man or anything else? Is there anything about these results that surprised you? We've got about 30 seconds. I've been really surprised by the whole roller coaster on the pandemic. Uh, the fact that no matter what happens, one day it goes up and then the news story changed and it bounces. So next month it may look a lot different. Yeah. Scott Rasmussen, really appreciate your time once again, and it is critical information. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Have a great day. For better or worse, all of these crises are going to be interpreted through the lens of politics and knowing what the American public think. It's not just interesting for us. It's critical for our elected officials as well. On the other side, we're going to talk to a former Trump administration State Department official about the planning in Afghanistan. Stay with us. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org slash blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with the like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Glad that you are with us. And we're going to continue our conversation on the crisis in Afghanistan. But right now, I want to examine a little bit, talk a little bit about planning or the lack of planning that led to the security crisis we are currently seeing in Afghanistan that risks uh, stranding not only Americans, but certainly our Afghan allies. Joining me now is someone who can speak to this, who previously worked at the U.S. State Department, which is intimately involved in the planning happening in Afghanistan. 
Pam Pryor served as senior bureau official for international organization affairs during the Trump administration. She has decades of experience, including working on Capitol Hill and, of course, the Trump administration, working with a broad community of religious communities to identify threats to people of faith across the globe. Pam, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you very much, Joseph. Pleasure to be here. Although what, I went to a different topic. No, fair enough. Um, very quickly, I want I want to get us an understanding because the, the part of me that, that has been most perplexed by this is trying to understand, just from a project management standpoint, how this has failed so spectacularly. The, the things that were not anticipated, the equipment, the guns, the airplanes, the vehicles that are being left over, the people that are stranded, how quickly the security perimeter just evaporated so we had no security. From your perspective, your experience of planning things for the federal government. What happened here? Well, it it was a colossal failure. And Joseph, um, before I go any further, I just think as people of the way, I want to just express extreme condolences to those families who lost loved ones um, in that explosion yesterday. And none of this needed to happen. You know, the one thing that I learned under Secretary Pompeo and President Donald Trump um, is planning is everything. And they had set up a crisis response center that the Biden administration promptly tore down. Mike Pompeo is not uh, one who is going to leave anybody on the field. And this would not have happened under our watch for several reasons. One, you don't give up Bagram. You don't say, hey, Welcome, take over without getting our people out first. And, and I'm like you, Joseph. I, I'm not a military expert. I've never worked at DOD. Um, state and DOD always have a little bit of an odd relationship because we do the soft side of diplomacy, DOD the hard side of it. But I will tell you that there were so many things. And again, um, we were talking a little bit. Um, you said your 10-year-old could probably have planned a better uh, takeover of this because You just get your own people out first. And then if it's going badly, call in more military troops. Why aren't we sending people over? You know, again, we had a, do people want a president that, um, you know, occasionally did a tweet that we like rolled our eyes at? But I'll tell you what, under President Trump and Secretary Pompeo, the U.S. government was respected. And that's what I fear most is the backlash of all of this when it comes down. But we did have plans in place. Um, COVID was a mean, mean thing to overcome our last year at the State Department. But even in the midst of that, we brought home hundreds of thousands of Americans during COVID. Now, granted, we didn't have people shooting at us. But we did have a, a pandemic to overcome and, and concern about the Chinese. Yeah. But I, I do think there's been so many missteps on this. Yeah, Pam, I think one of the challenges that I see here is that the Biden administration has taken fighting off of the table. So the the biggest card that we could play, we have promised never to play again, simply because we don't have the stomach. And I think he just doesn't like the concept of, of further war, which I think he would see that as. And so with people who really kind of only understand that language, we have we have advertised in advance, we will not do the thing that you fear most. But we've also heard, and actually Tony was on the program yesterday, and he talked about his work 
trying to evacuate people from Afghanistan. There are a lot of uh, religious organizations, private efforts right now to extract people from Afghanistan. And many of them are reporting, including members of Congress, that they're having to work around the State Department. Why do you think it is that uh, American citizens trying to get people out of Afghanistan don't see the State Department as an ally, but even possibly as a hindrance? Well, I think because, sadly, right now they are. Not everybody's in place from this administration change. I, I'll, I'll grant them that. You know, I, I want to be more generous to, the, to this administration than they ever were to us. So they don't have everybody in place. This is early in the administration. But I'm telling you, there are good people at the State Department. I worked with great career people. They know what to do, but they don't feel they're empowered to do it. And so the reason private people have had to take to their own efforts and thank God for them. I mean, thank you, Lord, for these people that have really worked to get people out because it is so frustrating to watch this, Joseph, night after night, day after day. I know of, of Christian missionaries that have gone to the Abbey Gates several times only to be torn, t- turned back, been told by our own government to turn back. Part of that was they knew that this uh, attack was coming. But, you know, where was that intel? We have a great, we have great pieces of stuff in place. You just have to use them. You have to use them. And Pam Pryor, uh, we are sadly out of time. We didn't have nearly enough, but uh, would love to continue this conversation again in the future. But thank you for taking some time for us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Joseph. And I think she makes an important point there that uh, there are great people within the State Department. We are ultimately all Americans, and that includes people at the State Department, regardless of what administration that you work for. A lot of people recognize the failure here, but for some reason, we have not been able to put it together to solve uh, some really obvious problems. But coming up, we're going to talk to Congressman Jody Heiss. He's going to join me with his perspective from Capitol Hill and the unfolding chaos. We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us. What is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray, Vote, Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. 
Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I'm sitting in for Tony. Glad that you're with us on this difficult Friday. It's been a difficult week for the country, and that is what we are discussing. How do we make it less difficult moving forward? And as we continue our coverage of what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, our government needs to be held accountable for the way this has been handled. And one way we as Americans are privileged to be able to do this is to call our leaders to account for the things that they do. And joining me now to discuss uh, what is happening as well as what can be done to provide accountability is Congressman Jody Heiss. He represents the 10th Congressional District in Georgia. Representative Heiss, thanks for joining us again on Washington Watch. Always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, first, I'd just like to hear your reaction uh, to the news of the week, and especially yesterday when you heard about our uh, 13 service members who were killed. Um, what was your reaction? Uh, horrifying. Uh, to be honest with you, we have been, our office has been working with a number of different individuals and families and groups for the last 10 days or so and have helped uh, a great many escape from Afghanistan, both citizens and Afghans. Uh, but we had one family, a mom and two daughters, who were killed in the explosion yesterday, as well as two of our service members who had been extremely helpful with us in our office in identifying different individuals and their locations and going to rescue them. Uh, so it was a horrifying day for our country, but in a very, very, very personal way for me and our team and uh, everyone that's been helping us over the last 10 days or so, uh, literally hit very, very close to home. Give us some details on, on what that means for you as a member of Congress in a crisis like this. What are the things that you are doing, that your office is doing, to try to help people in Afghanistan? Well, uh, obviously we're encouraging people to pray. This is a, a desperate time in our country, and uh, it would be far uh, irresponsible for us to pretend as though we do not need God's help in this. So first and foremost, I mean, that obviously is what we're calling on people to do. 
But beyond that, our office has literally been in the trenches almost 24-7 for the last uh, over, over a week, the last 10 days or so. Uh, and it seems to have gotten more intense over the last five days as the tension in uh, Kabul have, has, uh, the, the tensions have risen. The State Department has encouraged people not to go to the airport. Uh, over six days ago, they started doing that. So we have been aggressively trying to find other options and still get people to the airport. Uh, we've had feet on the grounds, tremendous kind of homemade uh, intelligence operations that we've just kind of created with time as to what gates are open, what gates are closed, how can we get people moving right now, uh, where should they be, who can make pickups, all that sort of thing. It's been quite an incredible experience. And I just have to tell you, this is something I will never, ever forget. This past week has been uh, highly charged in every way. I feel like I've cried every tear there is to cry. I've I got no more words to say. Uh, we've had anger. We've had frustration. And we've had to push a lot of those emotions aside to continue trying to help people right now who are in desperate situations. So it's um, it's a very tense time, and I'm afraid it's not going to go away for the weeks before us. And I think that is the right way to, to be handling this, despite the range of emotions that you described there quite well. Uh, the most important part at the moment is not assigning blame and pointing fingers, but there are people's lives who are hanging in the balance right now uh, that we hope our interventions uh, can help save and, and that we can minimize the amount of pain uh, that these events will ultimately lead to. Now, we know that this August 31st deadline that the Biden administration remains committed to is breathing down our neck. What is your level of confidence that Americans still in Afghanistan uh, that will be able to get out? I have very little confidence at all that we're going to be able to get everyone out, and that primarily is coming from our own experiences. In our office, we have had great difficulty with the uh, Department of State. Uh, they uh, they want they're more focused on filling out forms and getting all the regulations uh, right and uh, having this signature and that signature. Well, look, we're how many thousands of miles away, and we're not in the uh, shelter down places with these individuals who are scared to make a phone call lest they give away their location. They're not carrying around computers and printers where they can print out forms and get them. And yet it's these type of things that the Department of State are demanding. And so I think when the department, when when the administration talks about everyone who wants to get out of Afghanistan, they are going to get out. They are talking about those who have filled out all the forms, who have jumped through all the bureaucratic red tape they are not referring to the hundreds, perhaps thousands of individuals who have not been able to access those forms or to fill them out, let alone to turn them in. And so as a result, there is zero question in my mind that as the 31st day looms upon us, we are going to have scores of individuals who are going to be left behind. I think you actually may have answered my next question because I think a lot of us are curious about this qualifier that uh, Jen Psaki has made and even President Biden has mentioned, those who want to get out. 
Does that mean uh, that there are lots of people in Afghanistan who are American citizens who are like, ah, no, I'm good. I want to stay. Or does this just mean that they've set up these benchmarks, the, this this kind of um, gauntlet that you have to run to indicate to the State Department that you want to get out by filling out paperwork and otherwise they assume that you don't want to get out? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that's our experience right now, 100%. I mean, look, let's all face it, Afghanistan is not exactly a tourist vacation destination for Americans. It's not like people are going over there because they just want to go and hang out. And especially now when Sharia law, under the strict enforcement of the Taliban and other terrorist organizations, are taking over, the assumption from the State Department and the administration as a whole must be that every single American wants out. Uh, we don't need to be going with this attitude of whoever wants out has contacted us and filled out this form and that form and have jumped through all the bureaucratic loops. The assumption must be every single one of them wants out. We are going to get every one of them, whether they fill out a form or not. And the only way they have the opportunity to opt out if they so choose, which I doubt there will be very many, but Our assumption is every one of them want out, they're begging to get out, and we are going to get out. Uh, We're going to do all within our power to get them out. But that is not the attitude that's being exhibited. I think it's a very dangerous attitude, and it is going to result in uh, uh, untold numbers of people being left behind. And we are going to watch, I fear, in the next six to eight weeks or whatever it may be before us, horrible videos of people being abused, and I fear some of them very likely will be Americans. Well, I think it does seem like a safe assumption that those who are in Afghanistan would like to be leaving, and it seems that the Biden administration is is simply setting themselves up to make the argument that, well, uh, they didn't do what they needed to do to get out. Therefore, it may not be entirely our fault, uh, which seems like a horrible uh, position to be setting up to a horrible position to be prepared to take as the administration. Uh, but, but that's exactly that what they're where doing. We're going. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. They are trying to set the, the narrative beforehand so that they will say, we got everyone out who wanted to get out. Uh, and here's the forms to prove it. But uh, they are totally negligent of the reality of people who are trapped, who are stranded, who are on the verge of becoming hostages that are crying out, and our office is hearing from them. And we're responding, and listen, it's not just our office. There are many congressional offices that have had to, because of the negligence and incapable strategies of the Department of State, to come up with our own methods and find people who are capable of rescuing individuals and getting them to the airport or what other Uh, areas they need to be for safety and for evacuation. Yesterday, uh, President Biden made some remarks and answered some questions, and he was asked by a reporter about what he would say to Afghans who help the U.S. who might not be able to get out by the August 31st deadline, because, of course, they're also part of this story. I want to let you listen to that exchange and then hear your response. You say that what America says matters. Um, What do you say to the Afghans who helped troops um, who may not be able to get out by August 31st? I say we're going to continue to try to get you out. It matters. Look, 
I know of no conflict as a student of history, no conflict where when a war was ending, one side was able to guarantee that everyone they wanted to be extracted from that country would get out. Congressman Heiss, what's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, there's probably some truth in that. But here is the difference in this scenario. We pulled our military out without giving these people even an opportunity to get out. How in the world do you withdraw the military and then tell both your citizens and and withdraw in such a way that no one knew you were leaving? They left in the darkness of night without even telling our allies that they were leaving. We just... People went to bed one night, all was fine. They woke up the next next morning, and the U.S. military was gone. Our citizens were not informed. Our allies were not informed. Those who had helped the U.S. were not informed. And so now the scenario, different from other times in the past, the military left. They left these people stranded. And now we're coming back and saying, you know, more or less, get your own way out. Uh, we're here to help you. We're coming back. But uh, – Listen, now it's been taken over by the Taliban. You always must get those people out first and then withdraw the military. And that is what has complicated this thing. That is what made this one a an absolute disaster, probably the worst foreign policy military disaster in the history of our country. And there is no other shoulders entirely that this rests upon than this administration. You know, I think a lot of people would look at this situation and say, if the priority really is the safety of Americans and the safety of Afghan allies, you don't, as you just described, pull your troops out uh, before you've evacuated people under the cover of darkness without giving people a warning. If anything, you might beef up your presence for a moment while you extract the people that are important to you that you want to uh, protect. And then once everybody has been taken uh, out of the country, and perhaps maybe you've taken some of your equipment out of the country as well, that's when you withdraw your troops and make sure that your troops, those who are prepared to defend themselves, are the last people left. But the way this is actually being conducted is the troops are the last were the first people removed, and it it appears very likely that the people that we had committed to protecting are going to be the last people left. Now, Congressman Heisen, we're speaking again with Congressman Jody Heiss from Georgia uh, yesterday as well, and I want to switch a little bit to the conversation about accountability. And during a news conference uh, earlier today. Press Secretary, uh, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby was asked by a reporter about the security failure, and here's part of his response. Clearly, uh, all of that effort, and there was a lot of effort, clearly fell short in some way because this attack was able to be perpetrated, and we did suffer, as, as well as our Afghan friends, suffered casualties. We're going to do the forensics on this, Barb, uh, and clearly try to figure out uh, what went wrong, because clearly something went wrong. Congressman Heiss, you are uh, part of your job in Congress is to provide accountability. What investigations, what accountability do you feel like is necessary from Congress? Hey, listen, we are calling for investigations. We are calling on Speaker Pelosi to call us back in the session so that we can begin to deal with this. But listen, it, uh, it's across the board. I have called. There are have many others have called. There will be a continued call for the resignation of President Biden. Uh, there are going to be articles of impeachment uh, against Secretary Blinken. 
uh, Secretary of State. There will be calls for resignation of Milley and of Austin, uh, the Secretary of the Army, uh, and even Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it's time for her to vacate the chair. There have been breakdowns across the board. Uh, this is inexcusable what has taken place there. And look, there's a, a lot of room, as you mentioned earlier, to place blame. But indeed, there is blame. There are people who are responsible. There are people who must be held accountable. And I can tell you there are many of us who are making process in pursuing whatever avenues we can to make sure these individuals are removed from their positions. But in the meantime, we need deep-seated investigations as to all that has taken place in this entire decision-making process and absolutely, 100%, people must be held accountable for this. And Congressman Heiss, in addition to being a member of Congress, uh, you have in your past life been a minister as well. And uh, we've got about 60 seconds left. People who are confused, wondering about this, what do you tell them as a pastor about how to think, how to react to all of this? Yeah, listen, there is no greater weapon that we all have than the prayer. And there is no greater God than the Lord God Almighty. And he is not shaken by any of this. I know our emotions go up and down. We see horrible videos, and it's easy for us to sometimes get sidetracked by the reality of what we see. But our faith, our confidence must remain firmly planted on the Lord God. He is at work, and he's going to accomplish great and mighty things through all this. Congressman Jody Heiss, really appreciate that. Thanks for your time as well. Thank you so much. God bless. And that is a great way to end this. Um, God is still on his throne, but we have to go to him in prayer. We have to repent. Um, Let's find out what he's doing with us. What is he doing now? How can we join him in it? We'll talk about it more on Monday on Washington Washington Watch. Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 